Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, help us turn our hearts to you and to hear what you will speak. For you speak peace to your people. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 16. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lori. I say this every now and then. This has nothing to do with the sermon. Um, there is nothing like singing with people. And uh, there's just, there's a palpable spirit this morning. So I don't know what is going on, but I am grateful to the Lord for that and grateful to you for just singing. Um, that encourages me, and I hope you feel as encouraged as I do. We're uh, finally finishing a series this morning where we're taking a look at our church covenant. Our church covenant is a document that our church has used since 1840. It just occurred to me, there were people alive when our church ratified our covenant in 1840 who remembered before there was a United States of America. Just let that sink in for a minute. This is how long our church covenant has been a tool and a guiding um, affirmation for us. And our church covenant is just an affirmation of the commitments we make to one another. Because as we've uh, really spent a lot of time examining, uh, it's important to remember the church, the definition of the church, it's not, church is not a building. We have a building, and this is a wonderful asset and a wonderful resource. It's a tool for us to use, but it's not ultimately about a building. Church is not uh, an organization to be well run. There are organizational principles we need, and we want to be well organized, but that's not ultimately what we're about. Uh, And church is not just an event It's not just, I go to church on Sunday morning, and then that's it. But church is a people. It's a family who are committed to God and to one another in the love of Christ. So our church covenant describes the commitments that we make to one another because we're family. 
And we've spent the past, well, since off and on since Easter, uh, thinking very carefully about what are, just reminding ourselves, what are these commitments that we make to one another? This morning, we're in our last phrase, which says this, amidst life, I'm sorry, through life, amidst evil report and good report, we will seek to live to the glory of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is, this is a, a big, broad, cosmic conclusion. In some way, this is one of the harder, and I know I've said this about a lot of the recent, uh, the earlier sections were easier to preach on and the latter sections have been harder to preach on. Because it's so broad, where do you go with that? And yet the central affirmation that it's making that we're going to explore this morning is that we, uh, when things are good and when things aren't good, will seek to live to the glory of him, of Jesus Christ, who's called us out of darkness and into light. We exist to glorify God. Now, that's not language that we use in day-to-day life. At least most, I assume most of you don't talk about glorifying much of anything in day-to-day life. And yet it's a phrase that we want to at least consider and let challenge us a little bit. There's a a document called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a statement of the Christian faith written in the 1500s by British Christians. And it starts this way. It says, the chief end of man, like humankind's number one purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it links those two. It says, the glory of God and our joy are woven together so tightly that you can't unravel them. Another more recent pastor puts it this way. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's what we're going to explore this morning. Because my hunch is, if you have at least what we might call a stereotypical view of what does it mean to glorify God, we might think about something like, okay, I need to behave in a certain way. And I need to follow certain commands in the Bible. And I need to follow the Ten Commandments and do this and don't do that. And that's how I glorify God. And yet, we see in these documents, but we see in Scripture itself, that living a life that glorifies God has less to do with rigid adherence to a set of rules and regulations and more to do with a loving relationship. The best way we glorify God, well, Paul's going to tell us the best way we glorify God. Let's actually dive into it just like that. And if you have your Bible open, you can, uh, I'm going to refer to the text quite a bit. If not, it's printed in your program. If you're joining us from home, um, we'll see how good James is at recalling the scriptures. If not, open your Bible. It'll be right there all the time. Um, But we're in Philippians 3 this morning. And uh, let me just read for you the first two verses of our scripture passage this morning again. Paul says this, and remember, Paul is actually writing this from prison. We know that. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Those of you who are finance people, this language is really going to resonate with you. We're talking profit and loss, right? This is Paul's P&L. What was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what's more, I consider everything a loss, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Now right before this, I didn't include this in the reading, and maybe I should have, but Paul describes how he used to have all of the, the, the religious 
ethical, moral righteousness that was required. He says, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. And if you know anything about ancient Jews, you know that Pharisees were a group of Jews who took the Jewish law very, very, very seriously. I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He had a sparkling religious reputation. I had everything I wanted. And then in verse 7, he quickly turns and says, everything that I used to think was profit, I now realize was, is loss. Everything that used to be black on my statement, I now realize is in red and in parentheses. So if you're a finance person, he's talking your language. There's actually a translation that I found this week that I like a lot. It says, these assets I have now come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. All the stuff I used to think mattered, I now realize doesn't. Now, if you're not an accountant, and that's kind of, Paul is with you, and so he tracks, and he's going to give us a much more, uh, let's call it an earthy metaphor. Look at verse 8. He changes the metaphor, and he says, I consider all those things rubbish. Rubbish. Now, most of you probably aren't Greek scholars. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know enough to tell you this. The Greek word for rubbish is called skubala, and skubala is... Um, how do I put this? Skubala is the Greek equivalent of the English four-letter word that starts with the same letter. Got it? I consider all of that skubala. This is actually very powerful language, but no translator dares translate it as maybe it would be, literally. All that other stuff. Okay, so what do you do, what do, you do with rubbish? What? Like that can, okay, so all of the religious stuff, all of the law following, the rule following, the do's and thou shalt nots and all of that, what do you do with that? Well, what do you do with scubala, right? When your dog scubala's in the yard, what do you do with it? Do you, do you keep it? You don't leave it, right? Maybe, I don't know. You don't keep, do you keep it around just in case? And yet, what do we do with all of our achievement and moral behavior, Paul says, I treat it like scubala. It's out. I never want to see it again. Everything else in life is loss. If you're in business, what do you do with you? Write off your losses. You don't hold on to them. If something's costing you money, you get rid of it. You don't hang on to it. It's scubala. And Paul says, there's only one thing that is actually profit. That is worth hanging on to. What is that? Verse 8, I consider everything else a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That's it. Knowing Christ. As if Paul is saying to glorify God is not about keeping every single rule and regulation. It's not about getting the right reputation and making sure people think the right things about me. It's not about being buttoned down and making sure that everybody thinks I am a morally upstanding, ethical person. It's about one thing and one thing only, knowing Christ. I want to know Christ, he says. This is skipping down to verse 10. I want to know Christ single-mindedly. I don't think you can come up with a much better five-word summary of the Christian faith than I want to know Christ. Our, Our faith is not about certain moral 
or social or ethical behaviors. Being a Christian is not fundamentally about looking or acting a certain way or having people think a certain thing about you. It's not about making certain cultural or even political affirmations. It is quite simply knowing Christ. That's it. Now, there are certain moral and ethical and social results of our faith. Don't get me wrong. And those things do matter, but they are not primary. They flow out of knowing Christ. Another way of putting it is this. You don't have to be a Christian to be moral or ethical. And I would wager, I certainly know a lot of people, and you probably know a lot of people too, who are incredibly moral and incredibly ethical and incredibly generous and incredibly kind and want nothing to do with Christ. I'm not knocking morality or ethics, but I am knocking morality and ethics without knowing Christ. Because those things at their best flow from knowing him. Which, by the way, that phrase, knowing, that's part of our church's mission. I don't even know how long we've had it. Long before my time, we say, we want, what do we want? We want to know Christ and make him known. Do you know Christ? Do you want to know Christ? I want to know Christ, Paul says. And by the way, I, I would wager most of us can probably get behind that. Like, okay, yeah. I'm on board. I want to know Christ. This is verse 10. And then Paul continues, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And most of us can get behind that, right? Like, who's not into resurrection? Who's not into new life? And who's not into transformation? And who's not into leaving our brokenness behind? Who's not into forgiveness? Like, we're all into the, great, okay. I want to know Christ. You got me there, Paul. I'm with you. I want to, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. I'm with you there. And How does verse 10 continue? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Okay, you had me, Paul. I'm good with knowing Christ. I'm good with resurrection. But sharing in Jesus' sufferings, becoming like him in death, For Paul, you cannot have one without the other. Now, this is not to say that the Christian life is pure suffering. It isn't. I hope it isn't. It's also not to say we go out and seek suffering, like we try to intentionally suffer as much as though that makes us more righteous. That's actually, there's a a word for that. It's called asceticism. And uh, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul calls asceticism, he says it's basically false humility. Christian life is not pure suffering, and Paul's not saying we go out and seek suffering, but when, not if, but when suffering finds us, he says we bear it faithfully, and as best as we can, we seek to honor and to glorify God through it. This is very difficult for us. This is where we're going to camp for much of the sermon this morning, especially in the modern West. This is very, very difficult. So I don't know who your favorite uh, modern theologian is, but my favorite modern theologian is a man named Miroslav Volf. Um, he teaches at Yale right now. He's Croatian. And, so, and he lived in Croatia in the early 90s during the Croatian War for Independence from Yugoslavia. So he knows suffering. And he described, so he was describing, um, at, this is right at the beginning of the pandemic. He had done some writing 
Uh, basically saying, look at how the illusion of control in modern life has atrophied our resilience and our ability as Christians to suffer well. So here's what he kind of points out. We control so many things in our modern lives that in ancient cultures nobody even thought was controllable. You can control the temperature in your house. You can control the temperature in your car. You can control weather and when and what you eat. If you want Mexican food this afternoon, you can go out and get Mexican food. If you want pasta, you can have pasta. If you want a steak, you can go out and get a steak. We control the kind of education we receive and whether we receive an education and how much education we received. I mean, you could go on and on with a list like this. All these things that, that today we take for granted and yet a hundred much less a thousand years ago, like it was unthinkable that you had that much control in the world. And what Miroslav Wolf points out is that we enjoy so much control in our world that when things happen that are genuinely out of our control, we wither. Now he's writing this right as the beginning of the COVID pandemic started about two and a half years ago. Think about how COVID affected us. I don't mean to downplay it or say that it didn't matter. It does matter, and it was, it's incredibly significant, and we, we care deeply, and we grieve the amount of life that it's taken. But when we enjoy control in so many areas of our lives, and then something happens that's out of our control, we freeze, or we react wildly and irrationally, we're filled with anxiety, we're paralyzed. However, however we respond, like it really rattles us. What Wolf points out is that when we learn to suffer well with Christ, then he forges resilience in us. And that somehow when we suffer well, we honor and glorify God. This is why, by the way, in the church covenant, there's that phrase, amidst evil report and good report, when things are good and when things are bad, we will seek to live to the glory of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, it's, this is an overstatement. It's not 100% strictly speaking true, but you, you'll get where I'm going. Like, it's a lot easier to glorify God when things are going well, isn't it? But how about when things aren't? How do we respond when the doctor sits you down and uses the C word? How do you respond when you have to endure one more holiday waiting for that phone call from the estranged family member who hasn't called in years and the call never comes? How do we respond when the news is saturated with discussions about a global virus and racially charged violence and never-ending political tension? Can we learn in those moments to say, I know that there is so much in this world that is not good, but God is still good. Amidst evil report and good report, can we learn? How do you, how do you learn, by the way? When you figured it out, would you let me know? <laughs> um, 
This is not the kind of thing I can just tell you in a sermon. Like, just do this, 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 and you'll suffer well, and you'll be fine. No, it doesn't work that way. In fact, those of you who have suffered the most deeply know at the deepest level of your core that this is not something you can just hear a sermon on and be all set. In some way, and this is just an unfortunate reality, you only learn by doing. It's probably something that's caught a lot more than it can be taught. But what's the best way to learn? It's to know Christ. What does Paul say? I want to know Christ. And that includes sharing in his sufferings. Just very practically speaking, I'm going to dip my toes in some very practical waters and then quickly jump out again, lest I get too deep. But like just regular, hopefully daily, Bible reading and prayer is one of the best ways we can know Christ. And as we read scripture, you will come across example after example of men and women who suffered well and some who didn't suffer all that well. But in the word of God, the holy scriptures, we meet the word of God, capital W, Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh. So if you want to know Jesus Christ, the word of God, you will find him in the word of God. Now, this takes time. It's not an instant fix. I was reading an article a little while ago. Jen Wilkin is an author. She's, um, she writes a lot of Bible studies. She was writing in Christianity Today about six months ago, and she wrote um, the formational profit of spending time in the Word is more likely to emerge over 15 years than 15 minutes. Here's a quote. She says, We often approach devotional time like a debit card linked to a checking account. You put in the card and you get out the cash. Put in 15 minutes, have a good rest of your day. Don't put in the 15 minutes of Bible reading and prayer. Good luck for the rest of the day. That's how we tend to look at it. She says, We ought to look at it more like a savings account. Just slow, small, steady deposits over time, over many, many years, will add up significantly. Here's how she puts it. Uh, One more quote. She says, The book of Ezekiel probably won't fix your day today, but it may just sustain you in a lengthy trial if you give it the time it takes. Or if you want to change the metaphor, you don't start training for a marathon right after the starting pistol has fired. You start training. When do you start training? Months and months and months and months, maybe a year in advance. I don't know. I've never run a marathon. I never plan to run a marathon. And if you have, you're crazy. Um, If you wait to train for a marathon until the starting pistol is fired, it's too late. Like if you're lucky, you'll be gassed after the first mile. What happens? Then you realize there are 25.2 left. But steady, daily time spent with Christ through prayer and through the Bible will develop that resilience. It's also worth pointing out just one more quick question um, that's really valuable, especially given today's kind of media landscape, is asking, whom do I let disciple me? When I say disciple, I just mean teach or influence. A disciple literally just means a student. So like what kind of What kind of curriculum, if you want to use that language, do you expose yourself to? If if the only spiritual content you get is a sermon, half an hour sermon a week, 35 if the preacher goes long, and yet you're listening to several hours per day of cable news, 
I'm not trying to be too blunt, but don't be surprised if you find your soul resonating with the fear and the anxiety that cable news peddles. And if you are left wondering, how can this be? When you see God's invitation in the scriptures, fear not. In some way, we can kind of work and try to prepare ourselves. In others, this is a paradox. This is mystery. It's something that's really only formed in, like, you can only refine gold in a fire. There's no other way. The only way to purify gold is by subjecting it to fire. And yet it's in the fire that God meets us most deeply and personally, which is how Paul can say, I want to know Christ, and that somehow must involve some degree of suffering. Uh, One more quote. There's actually two, but the last one's short. But this is Peter Lightheart, another theologian. Listen to how he puts it. He says, when you suffer, you're on the cross. This is a metaphor. When you suffer, you're on the cross where Jesus was. And that's where the living Jesus will meet you. You ask for relief, and he gives you more suffering. Thanks, Peter. (laughs) You ask for relief, and he gives you more suffering, not only to work these virtues into you, but to make you a living witness to your crucified Lord. By your patient, joyful, persevering, honest suffering, he says, God demonstrates in your life that his power is made perfect in weakness. He makes your life a living witness to the power of the gospel. He proves in your life that the gospel is real. Do you see how that glorifies God? That makes him look good. I don't think it's too strong a statement to say. This is just kind of my hunch, but I'm pretty sure it's right. That one of the best ways that we can bear witness to our faith... One of the best ways that a world that's really not all that interested, if at all, in Jesus Christ, one of the best ways to introduce a world, a disinterested world to Jesus is to suffer well. So thanks for the inspiring sermon, Chris. (laughs) But in a world, think about it, in a world lacking resilience, and in a world that has been eating the junk food of fear and anxiety for so long, that has no idea how to find joy in suffering, what a statement does it make when they see you in the absolute pit and depth of hell itself saying along with Job, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That'll, that'll preach. That'll preach. This is a lot. This, this is heavy. I get it. And some of you may be wondering, like, that's way too much. Like, I'm not even close to that. How do I? I'm not there. First, God gives us the grace we need when we need it. If you don't feel like you have that kind of grace right now, it may well be because you don't need that kind of grace right now. But when you need it, he is always there with it. My power is made perfect in your weakness. He promises. But let me also point you to verses 12 through 14. Look back at verses 12 through 14. Listen to what Paul says. This is Paul. Okay, remember who Paul, like, this is a guy who wrote Bible. If anybody knows about religion and about Christianity, this guy knows it. He says, not that I've already obtained all this, nor have I been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Brothers, I do not consider myself to have yet taken hold of it. He's repeating himself. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the price, the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's an old saying, you know, that, that um, God cares more about progress than perfection. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. And so often our faith journey, it feels like steps forward and then steps backward, and then steps forward and then steps backward. If even Paul, I mean, if anybody had the grounds to be self-impressed, it was Paul. And if even Paul can say, listen, like, this is what it is, but I'm not there either. Then give yourself some grace if you don't feel like you're there either. If you did feel like you were there, what would happen? You might become self-impressed. And you might not rely on the grace of Jesus quite as much which is how this all comes back to Paul's statement. I want to know Christ. It's his grace that even allows us to suffer well. You see, so this isn't to make anybody feel, it's not to make you feel like I don't measure up. Far be that from me. The goal is to encourage you, press on. Like if you're in the thick of it right now, press on, press on. And if you're not in the thick of it right now, press on. And there's no time like the present to know Christ and to soak in his word and to soak in his presence through prayer so that when, not if, but when that time comes, you are better able to press on. Thanks, Fred. This doesn't mean it'll be easy. It won't. And when the time comes, like, you'll still ask why and you'll still ask questions and you'll probably still doubt and you'll wonder whether God is even good. But knowing we live for God's glory and not for anything or anyone else, including ourselves, gives us the resilience we need to suffer well and to know Christ. Now let's wrap up, and let me give you some words of hope as we wrap up. Because notice, Paul doesn't end with suffering, so neither will I. Look back to verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, I love that he's like, I don't even know how this works, but somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I didn't say this explicitly. I kind of hinted at it before. But you, you know, you actually, you cannot have resurrection without death. Like resurrection means you're raised from the dead. So you can't get to being raised from the dead if you're not dead first. For the Christian... It is also true that you cannot have death without resurrection. You cannot have death without resurrection. Because if you are in Christ, if you know Christ, if you are united with Christ, you realize he meets us in our suffering because he himself suffered our brokenness and sin on the cross, but Jesus didn't stay on the cross. That cross right over my shoulder is empty. And the climax of history was not Good Friday, but Easter Sunday. We say this once a month, every, every month before we observe the Lord's Supper. How does it go? On the third day, he raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. And from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. In Romans 6, Paul makes it clear. 
We have been united with him through baptism into his death. Yes, we suffer, and he meets us in our suffering more deeply than almost any other place. But if we are united with, his, with him in his suffering, how much more are we united with him in his resurrection? To be a Christian means mysteriously, I know, and I don't get how this works. Like we just, somehow through the course of our life, Jesus in his grace teaches us how to die with him and how to be raised to new life through him. He gives you a new life, a perfect life, his life. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it as we close. He says, this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporary suffering, no future bliss could possibly make up for this, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards. That's a good image, isn't it? And turn even that agony into glory. Let me read that one more time. I'm going to put we language instead of they. We say of some temporary suffering, no future bliss can possibly make up for this, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Press on, brothers and sisters, press on for the glory of Christ. Encourage one another to press on Pray for one another to press on. Ask one another to help you to press on because I just don't have it in me right now. Because death and suffering are not the end of the story. The end of the story is life, the light of the world.